are finishing up this week a sermon called Being Whole Disciples, which is a series that we've been doing going through the Sermon on the Mount. We are finally here at the end. We are at the the conclusion here. And so we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. If you have a Bible, you can can turn to that section. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find the the text uh, to the the passage that's in your, your worship guide that you can take a look at there. I'm going to go ahead and read for us then uh, Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 13 through 29, and this is God's word. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Amen. The power in a story, the power in a great address, most often lies in the conclusion. The conclusion is oftentimes the most memorable part of all. It's what evokes the deep response within us. How many otherwise great sagas have been made or broken then by the concluding installment? Or in famous speeches, it's often the conclusion, and it's how that conclusion is delivered that places them in the hall of great and notable orations. The famous Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream speech on the National Mall in 1963. What stands out most of all? It's the ending, isn't it? When he ends with, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. It's the conclusion is what evokes most of the emotion and then stirs us into action. Conclusions have great power because if you can't land the plane, what was the point all along? Jesus is now bringing the Sermon on the Mount to a close and he brings his, and he begins his conclusion then to a, to this long, lengthy sermon on the nature of discipleship, he starts to bring it to a close. And and he's been talking this whole time about what it means 
to be a whole disciple. Everything has led up now here to his final concluding thoughts. He's introduced at the beginning in in the Beatitudes, the life of discipleship, what living the good life of the kingdom looks like now, despite external appearances. He's then explained that disciples are salt and light in their witness to the kingdom in which they live and they work and they worship. Disciples are to pursue righteousness, not in external ways only or according to a bare minimum of of the law, but according to a greater righteousness that goes down to their hearts. They're to worship God and to serve others with the right motives. They're to engage in prayer in not some ritualistic fashion, but appealing to God as their father. Disciples are freed from the anxieties of the world as they pursue the kingdom with their whole selves. Kingdom life affects how a disciple lives with one another in the, in the world. And now Jesus is wrapping everything up here with his concluding thoughts. And he's searching for a, a response then. Based upon everything I've just told you, what are you going to do? How are you going to live? Are you going to follow me in this vision of life that I've set out for you? This is what life in my kingdom looks like right now. Will you trust me that this is really the way to go? And part of a good conclusion is then making it memorable. And Jesus, always the master storyteller, always the master speaker, leaves us then with several images that stick with us. And all of these images that we have here present to us two ways, two paths or gates, two builders with two different foundations, and ultimately we'll see two different ends. And as we scratch a little bit deeper here, Jesus is saying that there are really two ways to live. And those two ways to live depend upon two entirely different ways that you relate to God. There's the default path. There's living in ignorance to Jesus' words and then just simply meandering along brainlessly in life. But then there's also the discipleship path. Living with careful attention to Jesus' words and pursuing him with the whole person. In other words, we could categorize these two ways here as either being merely a hearer of Jesus' words or also being a doer of his words. This is where Jesus is telling us to choose wisely. Which is better? To walk in relative ease right now, but going along to the path of destruction, or rather to walk the hard path which leads to life? Which is better? Which are we going to choose? Which will we follow? Well, we're going to outline this this way of life in Jesus' words here. We're going to look at at the way of life here. And the first thing that we're going to see is that the way of life is narrow. The way of life is narrow. We said before, the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus is describing this vision of life in the kingdom. And the way to get there is by being, uh, is, is in the life of a disciple. In a way, this whole time, he's, he's almost shown us a postcard of his kingdom. He's shown us a, a picture of what it's like. So this is where we want to go. So how do we get there? Well, he says, choose the right path. Take the correct road and you will eventually find your way there. And so we, we look out and we, re- we first really only see one road, at least initially anyways. And that road, that first one is wide and easy. It's like an open highway where you can just kind of cruise along mindlessly and not really be thinking about a whole lot. Basically just operating off of default. 
It's a smooth road. It's nicely paved. There's not a whole lot of obstacles as you go along. And you look around and you see everyone else is going the same way too. There's a certain comfort to be taken when you're not going, al- uh, when you're not going all al- alone. You feel confident that you're headed in the right direction because this is the commonly traveled route. But then, though, we notice a side road. The second way here is narrow. It's more difficult. It takes more effort to notice the alternate path, this other road, but there it is. You have to fight your way across the the, the crowd. You have to go cross traffic in order to even reach it. And when you do, it's not the smooth one like you were accustomed to. It's dusty. It's gravelly. It's potholed. It takes real mental effort to navigate. It's not well-traveled like the other one. And there are moments when it seems like you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're having real doubts on whether or not you actually took the right way. But this is the way. This is the right path. Jesus has given us directions. He's shown us the map of how to get to the kingdom destination and we're to follow after him. But what makes it so hard is that it also requires an element of faith. We look at the road and at ourselves and we wonder, is this really it? Everyone else is going on some other way. And this road seems really hard. Am I going to run out of gas? Am I going to break an axle? Where is everyone? It takes trust in what Jesus has told us and the promise of life in the kingdom, which goes far beyond our own circumstances that we see and our own current experiences. But as we examine each of these roads, though, we see that they're really the same two paths that Jesus has been talking about all along through the Sermon on the Mount. It's a matter of righteousness and how you practice it. It's either an external righteousness, one that's lived on the surface, or it's a whole person righteousness, one that is done from the whole person, body and soul, and it comes out of the depths of the heart. These two themes come now to a head as Jesus asks us, which way are we going to take? The wide and the the easy road is following along and being content to practice what Jesus calls righteousness or the life according to how God desires, but practicing righteousness in merely superficial ways. It's taking comfort in one's religious acts, taking comfort in our giving and tithing, or walking through the disciplines of prayer without any real devotion to God the Father. It's any and all the ways that we might gain a sense of self-justification by the things that we do for God and the things that we do for others. Really, it's, it's living a mindless and thoughtless life devoid of the inner person, failing to reckon with our inner selves, with our hearts. And the narrow and the difficult road, though, on the other hand, is living within with the whole person devoted and engaged in the pursuit of righteousness and life according to how God desires. It's conscious of not only the actions which are done, but it also thinks about the attitudes and the motivations that are behind them all. It relates to God as Father and as the one who is merciful because it recognizes that we live by and we are upheld by God's mercy. This path is is a life of brokenness before God, of humility, of service and of servitude and and graciousness towards others because the disciple knows that they don't have a leg to stand on. So then why is the external the easy road and why is the whole person the hard road. 
What makes living according to external righteousness so relatively easy is that it doesn't reckon with, very honestly, who we are. It's life lived according to a mindless default, just like cruising down an easy road on autopilot. Living in outward conformity to righteousness very well likely might be countercultural, but it takes stock in the actions that are done. It's just like checking off a bingo card. The narrow road, though, of whole person righteousness is much more difficult because it has the blinders of the human heart removed and it sees just how needy we are. It's a life of radical repentance. Jesus has said before, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. As we saw in the Lord's Prayer, it's the prayer to, uh, to forgive us our debts as we forgive those of, of our, or we forgive our debtors. It's to live a life undeceived and consciously aware of the demands that Jesus makes upon our whole selves. And none of that is easy. Uh, an awareness of our absolute dependence that we have often isn't easy for us to take. But Jesus, though, reminds us that this is the way to live. This is what characterizes the road to his kingdom. The first beatitude the way that Jesus introduces his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's only when we are broken, when we will look upwards to Jesus, that we will then see ourselves in light of his cross and we will long for him and for his satisfaction. Discipleship isn't easy. And that's why he gives us this call to consider it with real honesty. If I'm seeking to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, am I willing to follow after him in this hard, existentially difficult way? But again, it's not the journey itself. It's where the road ends. Am I willing to go this path, this difficult road which leads to life? If I'm hearing this, I'm no longer ignorant. Am I aware of what road I'm walking? The second thing about the the way of life here is that the way of life requires wisdom. The way of life requires wisdom. If the way of discipleship isn't easy, then we're going to need others to be with us along the way. Jesus gives us guides to help us along, to show us the path when it becomes unclear or when it's hard for us to find. Guides who will encourage us, guides who will model what it looks like to walk along that path. But he also reminds us, though, that the stakes are high in this. This is a matter of life and death in his kingdom. And if the road isn't hard enough, then Jesus tells us that there will be false prophets along the way. In other words, these are guides who aren't actually leading us along the route to his kingdom, but are leading us back then to the road most traveled. But the thing is that they aren't easily spotted. They are wolves dressed as the sheep. They look You look at the outside and it doesn't match with the inside then. That should be a familiar theme that we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the outside that matters, but it's the heart that matters. And that's what makes them dangerous. They're not easily identifiable. They might sound good. They might use the right language. Or they might be just right enough to hide the wrong. So then how can I trust the guides who are around me? Because I can't look at the heart and see where it's aligned. I don't know if their inner person is oriented towards God or if their motives then are for his righteousness. And if this is a matter of life 
and death, how are we supposed to figure this out? Well, Jesus says, look at their fruit. The fruit of their life and of their teaching will give them away. Every tree and every plant will give its own kind of fruit. It's part of how you identify it. Our neighbors have a tree uh, next to our fence that has started growing over into our backyard. And we're about to hit one year living in this house. So coming into the spring, we had no clue what kind of tree this was that was growing over into the fence into our backyard. And to be honest, at first, I really didn't care a whole lot because the outer branches were hanging over into our yard and, and getting onto the corner of our house. And I was kind of get getting a little annoyed looking at it. But then this past month, my feelings, though, turned to joy when I recognized what type of tree this was. It turns out it's a cherry tree that's bursting with fruit, and our neighbor then let us have all of the cherries that were hanging on our side. But the thing is, it wasn't until I saw those cherries, when I saw the fruit, that I could actually figure out what kind of tree that it really was. But you can also, though, find out the quality and the character of a tree by looking at its fruit. If that tree produced bad or diseased cherries, then there's something wrong with the tree, and it's likely down at the root level. But likewise, also, there's no reason to suspect that the tree is rotten or it's sick or if there's anything wrong, if it bears an abundance of of fleshy, beautiful, healthy fruit. Jesus says that a false prophet then along the way, a false guide, will inevitably then reveal themselves by their fruit. You'll be able to recognize them by looking at their fruit, the type of fruit that they're producing and the health of the fruit that they're producing. But here's the thing. It likely doesn't happen immediately. There's an eventuality to it all. I didn't recognize that tree as being a cherry tree until nearly a year later when it finally bore fruit. It takes time, and sometimes it can take a very long time, but it is inevitable. Eventually, their fruit will come forth, and it will either smell sweet and fragrant like Jesus, or it'll smell putrid like death. So what does the fruit of a false prophet then look like? Discerning a tree by its fruit shows what sort of tree it is. The false prophet will bear fruit that doesn't align with the teachings of Jesus. It will be fruit that doesn't look like whole person righteousness, but is accepting of a righteousness on par with the status quo. It reduces the call of discipleship to an easy believism. It doesn't teach a proper understanding of God and his call to holiness upon us. It doesn't understand the beauty and the call of grace. It neglects the cross as central to our lives. It doesn't advocate for the narrow way of discipleship and righteousness that cuts to the heart. But like a tree that shows itself then to be, to be sick and diseased by its fruit, The same applies also to false prophets. Their behavior also may give themselves away. How do they act? Is their life peppered with the sweet fragrance of Christ? Is their fruit more concerned with power and with show rather than the humility and the service of Jesus? But conversely, though, the fruit of a proper guide, one that can be trusted, will look like Jesus. They'll be gracious and merciful. They'll be humble and gentle like Jesus. They'll be committed to teaching 
the whole person righteousness and following after him just as Jesus is committed to it. Their fruit will look like Jesus because their roots are sunk deep into Jesus. They draw their life from his life, not in any performance orientation towards God. They need his cross for their forgiveness. They need his wholehearted righteousness as their own. They need his resurrection and spirit as a source of spiritual life and strength because they, first and foremost, are not any different than you or I. They are, they, they are first and foremost a fellow disciple. And so they also draw the same life that we do from the same source. The aroma of Christ clings to them as they draw their life from him. So we need proper guides who are sunk deep into Jesus because they demonstrate, because they demonstrate what it looks like to live a life that is sunk into Jesus. They demonstrate to us how this life is lived in total reliance upon him. But so we have the third way though. The third way of life is one of being a doer, not just a hearer. The way of life is being a doer. The two ways that we have here, one of external righteousness versus the whole person can also be, still, be distilled into this. How you respond to the words of Jesus. You can hear the words of Jesus and, and, and acknowledge them as being interesting, perhaps even nod your head in affirmation, but that's it. It hears, but nothing else. It's a superficial hearing. Or you can hear the words of Jesus and then take them to heart and let them change you. To not only hear them, but to let them sink into your inner being and then to respond to them. To not only be a hearer of Jesus' words, but also to be a doer of his words. He's looking for a response. That's what this whole person righteousness is. It hears and then it responds from from the heart. It's not merely content to sit and smile and listen. It moves us on the inside. It breaks us. It grieves the ways that we haven't lived righteously. And then it looks to Jesus and his cross in repentance and hope as we start back again on that road to discipleship. It craves living righteously after God from the inside out. And Jesus gives us a shocking image to illustrate this, that it's not the external but the internal, that what he's looking for are not hearers of the word, but doers, those who have taken it to heart. That's in verse 21. Here are some on the outside, it seems that they might be obviously part of the kingdom. They address Jesus as Lord, Lord. They have an understanding that Jesus is Lord and they're able to articulate it. They have all the right theology, it looks like. They even say it twice, Lord, Lord. There's a certain zealousness that they have. But most of all, too, look at their works. They tell Jesus all of the amazing things that they've done, these incredible demonstrations of power and these outwardly amazing acts that have been done in Jesus' name. See, these are people who are incredibly orthodox in their understanding and their articulation. They are incredibly excited in their zeal, and they are incredibly impressive in what they can tangibly point to. But this is what shocks us. Jesus looks at them and says, I never knew you. It was a one-sided relationship. They were never his. And he tells them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
they present to Jesus their incredible resumes. And he says, okay, but who are you? What is this that you're giving me? Now, why would Jesus do such a thing? How could these people be rejected by Jesus despite having all sorts of credentials? Well, they were missing the most important thing. Verse 21. It's not your orthodoxy. It's not your zeal. It's not the seemingly great things you've done. Jesus says in verse 21, it's doing the will of God the Father. And what's the will of God the Father? It's the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's the last, however, we... 10 weeks or whatever we've, we've been in here. It's taking these words to heart. It's being a whole person disciple. I think the response isn't so much as shock then, but it's self-justification. Haven't we done all these things for you? Haven't we taught the right doctrines? Haven't we created movements? Haven't we mobilized large service acti- activities? Haven't we defended your name and spoken for you on college campuses? yes. But where did all of that come from? Did it come from a heart that truly loved God and pursued what he desires? Was it done for him? Was your inner person oriented towards God in the same way that your outer person appeared to be? Jesus isn't impressed by us. He pays little attention to the great things that we do on the outside, but there's something though that he does love and there's something that he looks for. That's the heart. He wants his disciples to follow him with all that they are. He wants them to look to him and to love and to trust him with all that they are, both the inside and the out. He desires a simple, basic inner life which is oriented towards him and which seeks to practice true righteousness as it loves what he loves. It's the regular, ordinary obedience and, tr- and, and looking to him and trust over the seemingly spectacular. As Eugene Peterson puts it in his book, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Are you feeling a lot of introspection from this? Is it causing you to second guess and wonder, well, am I one of these who Jesus has never known? In one sense, it ought to give us pause. His words are intended to elicit a response within us. It's a time for self-reflection. But at the same time, though, ask yourself, how are you right with God? How are you right with God? This doesn't need to be a time of fear or dread because we can have real assurance that Jesus not only declared us welcome because he knew us, but because he knows us now. How are you right with God? Go back to that question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. By what is faith in Jesus? It's by receiving and resting upon him alone as he is offered to us in the gospel. It's, res- it's resting upon Jesus alone, not upon the things that you have, do- have done. It's not giving your resume to Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus and saying, I want your resume instead. It's by trust and faith in what Jesus has done. It's by clinging to his mercy. It's by looking to the cross and his righteousness in place of our own resumes. Being right with him in this way goes hand in hand then with that relationship. And that relationship is seen then by our works. It's founded on faith, but it's seen by our works, by the inner whole person response to Jesus. We love because he first loved us. So that being a doer of Jesus' words isn't opposed to grace and faith. Faith is what bids me to follow him. 
even when that road is difficult and when it's hard. It's the proof of our trust in Jesus and his mercy is made evident by how we take his words to heart. Friends, are your, are your hearts softened by his words? Are you humbled by them? You can have confidence and assurance. Proof of our trust in Jesus and his mercy then again is made evident by how we take his words to heart. And in faith then, as we respond, he calls me to renounce my own ideas of the world and to follow after him then in a trust that he knows what's best. And so, which way will you choose? Which road are you going to go down? We're left with this famous short parable of two builders who build on two different foundations. Both houses look sound. Both houses might even look magnificent and beautiful. You can't discern a difference between either of them from the outside, but it's not the outside appearance that matters. It's what you can't see. It's the foundation. One is built upon the bedrock and it will stand firm in the harshest storm. And the other one is built upon sand and it will collapse before those same storms. See, it's not a matter of appearances. It's what lies underneath. And Jesus says that the one who hears his words and does them will be built, will be like the one who's built upon the rock. Verse 24. The one who takes his words to heart, the one who internalizes them and follows him as a whole person disciple will, will not be moved. This is the one who will find the road to life. This is the one who will enter the kingdom of God and will be welcomed then by Jesus. It's the response to his words that forms security in life. Now, throughout this passage, as we've read it here, I hope you've noticed these two divergent ends on both, both ways. There's the repeated theme of life versus destruction. Both roads don't merge. Both don't end up eventually in the same place. They end up in two different destinations, despite how they might appear. In other words, this is serious. It's serious for us. These are not trivial matters. They're not reduced to just simply how you choose to want to live in this life. In fact, it's not even a matter of how we experience life now. It's whether or not I'll stand or fall when life, it's not a matter of how I'll stand or fall when life's inevitable storms assail me. Jesus is revealing not only the two ways to live right now, but the two ends where each will take us, either life in his eternal kingdom or being cast away into destruction. Now, throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking almost as like a wise sage giving wisdom, except not as some mere human teacher, but he is astounding the crowds as the Son of God who is speaking on these matters that are of greatest importance in life. And he says that the the way of wisdom, or the way of wisdom that we have here is to train us into how to best live life. And Jesus then gives us the way of wisdom. He outlines the two paths. It's either the way of wisdom, which is difficult now, but will lead to life, or the way of blissful ignorance. A relatively easy path, as we live deluded to who we are, but will eventually end in destruction. Wisdom isn't idle navel-gazing. We're to respond to it and, and, and adjust our lives. We can't claim ignorance any longer. Jesus isn't only just speaking authoritatively to the crowds that we have here in the Bible, but he's also speaking 
authoritatively to you and myself as we sit here and listen. And so the same response for them is the same response for us. How will you live? His words awaken us to see life as it really is. Which road are you traveling? Are you content to be on that path? Or is there something greater that you desire? Jesus invites you to follow after him in this path of discipleship. To pursue him and his kingdom then with all that you are. Body and soul. Head, heart, and hands. Will you take up the call? He's calling you to something more than just life as we know it now, difficult as it may be, but to follow him along the way to life and joy and blessing that's found in his kingdom. It's just the way that he began it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Dear God, help us to see the, the way that we are on and the way that we are traveling. Help us to even discern the path between the two ways. We ask that you would give us a heart to respond, to not just respond with the words of our lips, not just to respond in, in our actions, but to respond with hearts that are truly moved by Jesus. And we ask that as we walk along the road less traveled as we walk, walk along the more difficult road, that you would protect us along the way because there are many dangers, there are many toils and snares along the way. But let us never also waver from clinging to Jesus this whole time. Lord, we need his life and we need his mercy. We long for the day when we will see him at the end of the road with our very eyes. We thank you for the the meal here the, of the Lord's Supper, which is a, a sign of his promise that he will be with us always. And so we pray that you would use it to build up our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.